Good morning, Grace. Our scripture this morning comes from John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Hello. Good morning. (laughs) Wouldn't be Grace Church without one of those. You don't get to see drummers and bass players in suits enough, do you? (laughs) Jesus is born. There are few things more worthy of celebrating, and I can think of no better way and no better place than to do that together with you all on this Lord's Day. I love that we get to be here now and that we get to come back this evening. If it wasn't clear already, we have a Christmas Eve service tonight at 4 o'clock. It's mostly singing and, and, and hearing the Christmas story read by different families. Come on back if you would. I love also that this passage fits so well with Christmas. I'm, I'm eager to share with you what I mean by that. I, it's one of my favorite sermons I've written in some time. It's, it's been a remarkable encouragement to me, and I hope it will be to you as well. The big idea is that Jesus is triumphant in all that he says and does. And here's a little teaser, a little something. I don't know if you noticed, but the title is Jesus' Triumphal Entries, plural. The main takeaway is that we ought to live every moment of every day in light of the fact that victory belongs to the Lord. Let's pray and dive in. God, thank you for this people. Thank you that on this Christmas Eve morning, in a time where it's just so easy to be carried away with nostalgia, that we get to pray for people we're sending out to the ends of the earth and who have been and come back and are going back and who are there now and resting and We pray for all those who go out in the name of the Lord. Strengthen them this day. I thank you that this people is serious about their faith. I thank you, God, that we we mean to honor you as you have called us to and not just be carried along by some current. God, help us to be thoughtful and prayerful. Help us to live in every minute in every way, according to your word. Let it inform all that we do. Your word tells us that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, may it all be to the glory of the Lord. Your word tells us to love our neighbors, ourselves, and to love you above all things. Your word tells us to go even into the ends of the earth, proclaiming the good news of Jesus. But your word also tells us the content of each of those things. It is not up to us to decide what it means to love our neighbor or to love you or to tell the world about you. You alone get to tell us what that means. And our job is to obey you by living in light of that. And so, God, even on this Christmas morning, the morning we, or Christmas Eve morning, the morning we celebrate the coming and incarnation and hypostatic union of 
second person of the Godhead. I pray that we would do it in a manner pleasing to you, according to your word. And so I pray now that as we turn to it, you would open our eyes by your spirit to all that is in us, for all the encouragement and hope and help and longing and anticipation and celebration shaping that is here. I pray this in Jesus' name and for the good of your people. Amen. So our passage for this morning, as you probably know, is commonly referred to as the triumphal entry. I I don't think I knew this. I probably did and forgot, but I don't remember knowing this. Uh, It is one of the few things that is recorded in all four Gospels. It's one of the few stories that all four Gospels has, and that's meant at least to burden us for its significance or to heighten us to its significance. It certainly is that. It's called the triumphal entry, and it certainly is that in a way, although if you stick with us in the coming weeks through John's gospel, Jesus' triumph would take a much different form than the crowds in this passage imagined. But it's good for us to recognize, and here's your first hint at the title, the reason the title is what it is, but it's good for us to recognize that this was actually Jesus' second triumphal entry. You know that? I think you do. At least you should on Christmas Eve morning. We can't truly understand, or at least not fully as possible, understand the second, the one recorded in our passage, if we don't begin with an understanding of the first. So before Jesus was even conceived, conceived mentally or conceived physically, an angel visited Mary and said to her concerning Jesus, do not be afraid, Mary, which I think, you know, is probably too late if an angel's talking to you. <laughs> Come back from your fear, maybe, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be great and called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary, through you, there will be one who will have a triumphal entry at his birth. Before he was born, still, so now conceived but not yet born, while still in Mary's womb, when Mary went to meet with Elizabeth, Elizabeth exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? There will be a triumphal entry soon. At Jesus' birth, at the first triumphal entry, the glory of the Lord filled the sky, and an angel of the Lord declared, Behold, I bring good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day is a triumphal entry. Unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This was followed then. This this single proclamation or this proclamation of the single angel of the Lord was followed by a multitude of of angels praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And again, shortly after Jesus' birth, wise men from the east came to Bethlehem and asked, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews, who has made this triumphal entry? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Jesus' first triumphal entry, Grace, before this one, was at the time of his birth. It came when the eternal Son of God took on human flesh and a human nature and dwelt among us. In the opening of 
his gospel. John says it this way, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It had been determined by the Almighty God, before the foundation of the world was laid, that Jesus would be victorious in and over all things. His first triumphal entry then, his coming to earth as a baby, had been promised for ages and generations and was finally revealed on the first Christmas. The King of Glory had finally come. That's why this day is so special tomorrow as well. That's why it is right for us to be here, to dress up a little bit more. That's why your drummer and bass player are suit clad. It is right to do that, to sing with a little bit more enthusiasm, to pray with a little bit more faith, and to come back tonight to hear and sing of this story again, because today marks the day of Jesus' first triumphal entry. This Christmas Eve morning then, with the heavenly proclamations that I just read of the fact and glory of Jesus' miraculous birth, with that ringing in our ears, we get to consider Jesus' triumphal entry. Second triumphal entry, along with the response of the crowds and the disciples and the Pharisees, and then ourselves to it. And so for those, from those heavenly and earthly declarations, the crowd's response to our passage for this morning. So think of what I just read. Think of the promises that were made. Think of the responses to them that I just read concerning Jesus' first triumphal entry. And now think of our passage for this morning. The crowd's response, what we read in the beginning, makes perfect sense then, doesn't it? It makes perfect sense. It's exactly what we might expect. What else might we expect in light of what I just read other than Hosanna? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. That's what the angels had said. That's what the shepherds had heard. That's what the wise men knew. What other response might there be at the second triumphal entry? of the one whom the prophets foretold and the angels heralded. Grace, forget what you know for a second. In fact, if you didn't know any better, we might expect from these angelic proclamations a straight line to the words of the crowds here in John 12, right? I mean, it's exactly what we would think we would hear, and we might expect the straight line. The the Son of God has come. The Messiah is here. The King is revealing himself. We might expect an uninterrupted rise from virgin-born infant to coronated king, right? But of course we do know better, and that's largely what this passage and certainly the next several chapters in John are about. There was anything. (laughs) The rise was anything but a straight line, and this peak, what looks like a peak right now in this passage, is about to be turned into a deep, dark valley. Even though the bulk of the passage is hopeful, even the last verse here hints it, what is to come. With that, let's let's look at the second triumphal of Jesus a bit more closely in light of the first. It was planned by Jesus. It enthralled the crowds. It confused the disciples, and it caused the Pharisees to resign themselves to this moment. Let me say that again. Planned by Jesus, it enthralled the crowds, it confused the disciples, and it caused the Pharisees to throw their hands up. Let's look at each of those, planned by Jesus. On the surface, I, I don't know, when you read this, do you see this? I, on the surface, at least to me, it sounds like the large 
crowd thrust Jesus into the spotlight. In John's account of these events, it sort of seems like the kicker, you know, just kicked the game-winning field goal as time expired. And the team, his teammates, he didn't choose this, didn't necessarily even want this. The teammates hoisted him on his shoulder and carry him around. It sort of feels like that to me. Considering John, what John said in chapter 6, verse 15, seems like maybe even more. It's a reasonable interpretation. He said, he said, perceiving back, back then when crowds were trying to make Jesus king again, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. First reading, it's almost like that which the crowds had been unable to do previously when Jesus had performed miraculous works, they succeeded in here. And yet we know, both from this passage and the rest of Scripture, that just like the first triumphal entry had been planned by God, so too was this one. There are two places in our passage itself that speak to this. The first is verses 14 and 15. And in those two verses, John explicitly states that Jesus entered Jerusalem in the manner that he did in order to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah 9 which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout aloud, Hosanna, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus knew this prophecy, of course. He knew that it was about him and about this moment. And John tells us that he knowingly and willfully rode into Jerusalem on a donkey to fulfill it. Jesus is King Grace Church, and he is triumphant. We cannot read verses 14 and 15 as John and Jesus intend and miss the fact that our passage is a description of Jesus finally presenting himself to the world as he's always been, as king. The second triumphal entry is exactly what the angels promised in the first. The second way, then, that this passage makes clear that Jesus planned this is found in verse 16. There John records the disciples' future response, not this one, we'll come back to that in a minute, but their future response. They remembered later, John tells us, that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. In other words, in that moment, the disciples were confused. Later, however, they came to see that this triumphal entry was long promised and planned by God. As I mentioned, The rest of the Bible helps us to see this as well. For instance, what John just sort of glosses over and doesn't say anything about, Matthew states explicitly, prior to arriving in Jerusalem, Matthew tells us, chapter 21, that Jesus sent two disciples ahead, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Jesus didn't merely decide at the last minute. He wasn't just walking into Jerusalem, saw a donkey sitting there and thought, huh, I'll hop on that thing. My legs are tired. Rather, he planned it in advance because he knew it was a fulfillment of Zechariah 9. He arranged in advance at the proper, for the proper vehicle for his presentation of himself, his coronation. The main point for us to see is that Jesus was finally revealing himself as king. Embedded in this passage is a statement about the nature of his kingship, namely that 
he was coming as a king of peace rather than a military conqueror that so many expected. Read Zechariah 9.10 later if you want. But the simple fact is that Jesus' time had come, and it was him, not the crowd, who determined to make it known. How about the crowds then? It leads neatly to their response. Look with me at the beginning of verse 13. So they took branches. Jesus presented himself to them in fulfillment of Zechariah 9 as king. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. At that time in Israel and for some time before, palm branches were, and I love somebody else wrote this, but it says, used as symbols of victory and kingship. By meeting Jesus with palm branches, the crowd showed that they were welcoming him and receiving him as king. Jesus was presenting himself as king and the crowds believed him. They were, as we'll see as we continue in John's gospel, mistaken about certain aspects of what that meant, about his nature as king and his triumph. But there was no doubt they were beginning to see things a bit more clearly. Consequently, they cried out, as we saw earlier, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. By this time, Hosanna was used pretty commonly among the Jewish people, and it was simply an exclamation of praise. They were amazed by Jesus, excited at the prospect of what his triumphal entry might mean. And they cried out because of it. The rest of what they said was a quote from Psalm 118, 26. It says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the key to it. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Interestingly, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but I think it'll be helpful to you. This was a psalm sung by the Jews to the Jews. As the Jews would come into Jerusalem and approach the temple for the various feasts and sacrifices, their fellow Jews would greet them with these words. So imagine you are a greeter at Grace Church. Maybe you can sign up for this. Now you've got your script. But here it is. You're a greeter at Grace Church, and someone you know and love, and you know that they love the Lord, comes in, and they walk through the door, and before you hand them a bulletin, you would say to them, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. That's how they would greet one another. We we should do that. Try that later on today, or, or later this evening maybe. But it was a it was a song the Jews would sing to each other. In this context, the crowd shouted this in unison as a way of welcoming Jesus and declaring that he was indeed coming in the name of the Lord. More than that, though, they clarified that they meant more than that as well. They added one more clause that isn't in the original psalm to make clear that they understood Jesus to be more than merely a faithful brother a faithful man of God. And so they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And here's the key. Do you see it? Even the king of Israel. They said with their mouths right then what they had already communicated with their palms. They were declaring and celebrating the fact that Jesus was indeed the promised king of Israel. They were starting to put the pieces together. His unparalleled insight and power and presence all pointed to the fact that he really was the Messiah promised by God. And the crowds saw that more clearly here than they had to this point. So what changed? Why were they able to see that now in a way that they'd missed for so long? What was it about this day and this presentation of Jesus himself that caused them to respond differently than they had before? Well, John tells us that as well. He tells us that the key that unlocked this for most of them was Very understandably, the raising of Lazarus from the dead just a short time earlier in an area nearby. Look at verse 17. The crowd that had been with him 
when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. In verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. There's something subtle in there that's important for us to pick up on. Verses 17 and 18 actually describes two crowds, two separate crowds coming together as one. The first, the one described in verse 17, was the group that had been present during the miracle, during the time when Jesus actually raised Lazarus from the dead. They were uh, obviously the more excited among all of them. But the second, described in verse 18 and also in verse 12, was a group in and around Jerusalem who had come there for the Passover and who had heard about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and were amazed. Again, they didn't know it yet, but as much as the crowd got right, they also had a ways to go before they truly understood who Jesus was, what he meant in presenting himself as king, and what he was about to accomplish. Nevertheless, Grace, what they did understand, they celebrated, and none more than the first group who continued to bear witness to what they had seen and heard. May that be May that be a lesson for us, Grace. Actually, three lessons. Let me give them to you quickly. First, let us see how natural and normal it ought to be. How natural and normal it ought to be to experience Jesus' glory and then turning it straight into praising God and telling others about it. Let me say that again. It needs to be increasingly, for all of us, me included, me especially, Let us see how natural and normal it ought to be to experience Jesus' glory and then turn it straight to praising God and telling others how they too might experience it. Oh, that we would turn our quiet times and the evidences of grace that we see in life and the experiences we have of God's blessings day after day, the new mercies he gives us every morning. May we turn them into immediate and joyful and bold worship in witness-bearing. Learn that from these crowds. Second, may we learn from them that we don't need to know everything about everything to bear witness to the glory of the birth and triumph of Jesus. How many of you have ever paused to talking to a neighbor or a family member or a friend about Jesus because you thought, what if I don't know what to say? What if they ask me a question that I'm that stumps me? We don't need to know everything about everything to bear witness. There will be always, always someone smarter than you who asks a question that you never thought of, who knows more than you. There will always be more to learn and greater depths of God's nature and word and salvation to plumb. But we can always share whatever we have. Kids, most of you know plenty. You're going to get together with grandma and grandpa and maybe some friends tonight. And most of you know plenty to tell your neighbors and grandparents about the God who was born as a man to save the world from our sins by dying in our place. Almost all of you know enough to tell somebody that. So celebrate that and tell somebody. Third, lastly, we might not understand everything about Jesus' kingship either. We might not understand everything about his salvation, but we might not understand everything about the fact that he is king. But we certainly know know enough to give ourselves to obeying the commands we do have, and we do know. We know enough not to pit our own wishes and our own desires and our own sense of things, and our own morality, and our own wisdom, and our own authority against Jesus. He is king, you are not. Turn to the person next to you and tell them that. He is king, and you are not. 
We ought to honor him and follow him in every way, in every moment, in every aspect of life, in every part of the world, no matter the earthly cost. We ought to join in the crowds and repeating, bearing witness and declaring, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of the whole universe. Next, the third or the next response is the disciples, and we see something familiar in them. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. That's a great description of most of us. How many times has this been the case for them? How many times had the disciples misunderstood Jesus or failed to fully understand the significance of what they did understand? One of the clearest, we saw this earlier in John, one of the clearest parallels is right away. I love that chapter 2 and 12, and we'll get another in chapter 20. It's like John is making plain to all of us that we we miss, we're, we're lacking. In chapter 2, Jesus promised, destroy this temple. And in three days, he's standing outside the actual physical temple in Jerusalem. And he says, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will rise it up. You can imagine they're standing around (laughs) looking at this giant temple behind them thinking, what are you talking about? No one, not even the disciples understood him at that time. And so in chapter 2, verse 22, we read, when therefore, and not until therefore, he was was raised from the dead. His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Grace, although they had traveled with Jesus for more than three years, by the time of the events of John chapter 12, they were still missing large chunks of understanding. And that combined or continued on even through Jesus' death and his resurrection. But when Jesus was glorified, John tells us, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they be- they believed. He remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And what was and that was the fulfillment of a promise that Jesus is about to make in chapter sixteen. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do go away, the helper will come to you. Or if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will guide you into all truth. Grace, as you know, we are a lot like the disciples. So let us go slow and be humble. Let us be careful and eager for correction. Let us be childlike in our faith and our willingness to be instructed. But at the same time, we do have the Spirit. So let us praise God and be encouraged. Let us read his word with expectation and confidence. Let us give ourselves to seeking wisdom and understanding and believing that he will give generously to all who seek it. Well, that brings us to the final response recorded by John to Jesus' second triumphal entry, that of the Pharisees. They'd worked hard to silence Jesus. They'd rebuked, threatened, imprisonment, and death. They'd sought to intimidate Jesus, his followers, and the crowds who were nearby, and all to no avail. As they watched the procession unfold, you can just... You can just imagine what they're thinking. It's not hard to imagine their response. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world now has gone after him. Nothing we've done has worked. He's turned every attempt we've made back on, back on our heads. He's evaded our every attempt to silence, capture, arrest, and kill him, and he's made us look like fools at each turn. But rather than recognize in this moment the reason for their impotent plans, 
namely that they were going against God. Rather than recognize the folly of their actions, rather than repent and believe as Jesus was offering himself to them, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders would soon redouble their efforts. For now, however, they simply had to throw up their hands, sit back, and watch as Jesus was adored by the great and growing crowds, possibly at this time, nearly three million people. And so all of this brings us to the point of needing to consider our own response this Christmas Eve morning. Grace, what is your response to the triumphal entries of Jesus? What is your response to God being born and revealing himself as king? What do you make of Jesus coming and his coronation? Are you like the crowd in any ways? Partially and unknowingly misguided, but full of zeal and joy? Are you like the disciples at all? Faithful, but knowingly confused? Maybe you're like the Pharisees. Resigned to the fact that people are still going to chase after Jesus, even though we believe he's a liar. Or is your response something different still? Here's the simple fact of the matter, Grace. I hope you know this. Having heard the story, having heard of Jesus' triumphal entries, we must all respond. You can't not. You have to do something with it. What's more, the the Bible repeatedly says that you might know a hundred people, and all of them handle this what seems like a little differently, Jesus and his triumphal entries. But the Bible repeatedly and explicitly tells us that in reality there are only two possible responses. There are only two things you can actually do in response to this. They look, they can look a little different, but there's really only two things. Either, either, by God's grace, you will experience the holy glory of God, desperately acknowledge your sin against him, and surrender your life entirely to him as your Savior and your Lord, or you won't. Those are the only two options. There are no others. The first John wrote leads to, in fact, the whole reason he wrote leads to eternal fullness of life and joy and peace and the loving presence of God and all of his people. The second to eternal destruction is the just punishment for a treasonous sin. Before you finally decide, though, how to respond to Jesus' triumphal entries and in conclusion, consider with me the remarkable fact that there's going to be yet another triumphal entry. You know that? tricked you, didn't I? It's not the triumphal entry, it's the triumphal entries, but it's not just two, it's three. Revelation 19, 9 through 16, and an angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then, then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse, the very one they expected to see Jesus coming in on in the second triumphal entry. A white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses themselves, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh is written a name that is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Grace, Jesus made his first triumphal entry at his birth. 
He made another at his coronation, and he'll make one more still at his return. In his first two, he came on a donkey. In both of those, he came on a donkey as a king of peace to rescue us from our sin. In his third and final one, however, he will come on a white horse as a warrior king to defeat all of his enemies once and for all. And the crowds, as the crowds in our passage expected then, they were right to expect it, but way off in their timing. It will be terrible to his enemies, this final triumphant entry. It will be terrible to his enemies beyond anything we can imagine and glorious to all who have received him as king beyond anything we can imagine. Again, then, on this Christmas Eve morning, how do you respond to Jesus, the triumphant one? For now, let us pray and sing with all that we have, rejoicing and crying out, Hosanna, for truly blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord.